0: On a beautiful sunny day, the Minnesota Twins and the New York Yankees
1: are soon coming up on the diamond to play a crucial game. Standing before the focus on faith camera is Jim Cutt, excellent, outstanding pitcher for the Minnesota Twins. Jim, it's a joy to have you
0: before our focus on faith camera today. We want to welcome you to New York. Well, it's uh, always a A thrill to play in Yankee Stadium. I got my first major league win right here in this stadium and for nine years now I've been playing in the major leagues and so it always has special significance to me to play right here in this ballpark.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Jack Buck with Carl Erskine at Municipal Stadium in Kansas City, Missouri. From Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Brought to you direct from Comiskey Park. So we have action at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn. And there's
0: always action here. For the deal in Cincinnati, Ohio. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Sunny day here at Tigers Stadium. The wind blowing straight in from right field. Well, fans, here we are back at the polar grounds in New York City. So pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for a throughout
1: the evening. When Jim Cott retired in 1983, he had played 25 years of Major League Baseball. At the time, that was a Major League Baseball record. He wrapped up his career with 283 wins and 16 gold gloves, and this summer was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Jim Cott, welcome to the Lost Ballparks podcast. How are you?
0: I'm doing fine, thank you.
1: First of all, Jim, congratulations on your induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame this summer.
0: Thank you very much i appreciate that
1: it's really an amazing story considering that in 1947 when you were just eight years old your parents drove to cooperstown to watch one of your dad i think your dad's favorite players lefty grove be inducted into the baseball hall of fame and here now 75 years later you join lefty among baseball's immortals
0: yeah that was uh, quite a surreal experience i learned about the hall of fame when i was a young boy we before tv my dad loved to teach me baseball history and uh, And he would ask me this question, and I heard it so often that I knew the answers before the question was done. You know, it was Ty Cobb, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson, Babe Ruth, and Hannes Wagner, the first five inductees into the Hall of Fame.
1: It's just magical that all these years later, you're joining that original class, and and I'm sure you just wish that your dad were around to see it.
0: Yeah, I talk to uh, my family and my sister about it a lot, and we just uh, wonder, you know, what What he would have thought, knowing as when I was eight years old, we talked about the Hall of Fame. And now, 75 years later, I'm honored to be inducted there.
1: So June 26, 1946, your dad took you to your first Major League Baseball game at Briggs Stadium in Detroit, which, of course, was later named Tiger Stadium. Take me back for a second. What stood out to you about the corner?
0: What struck me is when we went up to uh, find our seats, this dark green cathedral called Briggs Stadium opened in front of my eyes, and I'd never seen anything, uh, a facility like that, and then the greenest grass, the whitest uniforms, and I've heard other players kind of make the same comment that that's what impressed them, but I was just so impressed by the whole atmosphere, because as a young boy, you know, just playing Sandlot ball, why, that was just unbelievable to think there was a, a place like that where guys played baseball. I,
1: I think you did it one time, but do you still have the um, the frame piece of paper, the the box score from that doubleheader that day?
0: Oh, yeah, I have both of them. Certainly do, yeah, June 46. In fact, Peter Hurt from the Elias Sports Bureau, when I began to recount to people what I remember about those first couple games, he said, yeah, those players think they remember things, but it's not really the way they remember it. But <laughs> we laugh about it now that I was... I was pretty spot on about the scores. And, you know, Williams hit a couple, Greenberg hit a couple, Tigers won, Red Sox won one game. So I remember a lot about that.
1: So growing up in Zeeland, Michigan, you were uniquely positioned to pick up games from uh, a few different cities. Who are some of the teams and announcers that you remember listening to as a kid, you know, with your transistor radio?
0: Yeah, I didn't have a transistor. I just had a little, probably a Philco at that particular time. But on a Sunday afternoon... Uh, I could eat. I could get eight games. I could uh, every team played a doubleheader: Cubs, White Sox, Tigers, and the Braves after they moved to Milwaukee. So you know, I heard Bob Elson with the White Sox. Three up and three down. Quite a contrast to yesterday's ball game when they got a flock of runs in the first inning. Jack Brickhouse with the Cubs.
1: Well, God bless him. It's a beautiful day. No matter what happens out here weather-wise, it's a beautiful day.
0: Gary Heilman, a former player, uh, announced for the Tigers, and then. Uh, Blaine Walsh and Earl Gillespie did the Braves games, which I love to pick up because Henry Aaron was my uh, favorite position player. The Braves center fielder, Henry Aaron, leads off in the last half of the second. Aaron has four hits, two extra base hits, a triple... And a home run and two runs batted. And he is hitting at 308. Yeah, and then you know a little later, even when I was playing professionally, uh, when I drove home from the Met Stadium in Minneapolis, I could pick up KMOX down in St. Louis. I picked up—I want to say it was KDAK or something—in Pittsburgh. So they had these clear channel radio stations late at night, where you know before uh, cable television or, or some of the news outlets, that's how you picked up your baseball information.
1: You mentioned in your book, "Good as Gold." that your interest in baseball really began to take off in 1954 and then also 1955 listening to the World Series. Uh, 54 would have been the Giants and Indians. 55 would have been the World Series with the Yankees and Dodgers.
0: I remember seeing a little bit, I think, of the 54 series. Here's where
1: baseball's postseason classic will start. The Polo Grounds, rich in baseball history.
0: The Giants swept the Indians, who were heavily favored. Yeah, I think I really took a, an interest in that because I knew, you know, the Dodgers were always so close, but they never won. It was the old wait next year. And, you know, I can remember Sandy Amorosa's catch and Johnny Padres, who I got to meet later. I remember his performance in game seven. So uh, certainly I recall that that only spurred on my interest in the game.
1: And I look back on those teams in 54 and 55, the New York Giants with Willie Mays, Bob Feller and the Indians, Campy, Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, Gil Hodges and Duke Snyder for the Dodgers, Mickey Mantle and the Yankees. It's no wonder you fell in love with baseball. So after pitching for your high school team, the Zeeland Chicks, you went on to pitch for the Flying Dutchman of Hope College. It was there that a scout for the Washington Senators discovered you and then in 1957 invited you to come try out for the team the next time they were in town at Comiskey Park. What do you remember about going to Comiskey Park for your tryout?
0: The uh, White Sox on my number retirement recently in Minnesota presented me with a seat from old Comiskey Park, which I have on my back deck here at my home. But yeah, that was where I tried out. That's where I made my debut. Uh, Comiskey Park, probably more than any other park has milestones in my career that are memorable and, you know, things like I won my 20th game there. I hit my first home run there. I pitched my first shutout there. So a lot of good memories from old Comiskey.
1: Yeah. It's just amazing to think that at 18 years old, here you are and you've got a professional tryout. Were you nervous?
0: You know, I don't think there was any stress or or nerves about it. I just uh, felt like it was a great opportunity. And, you know, the fact that I got scouted and was trying out, I just thought that was another step along the way to what might be a a major league career. So certainly, again, it's a, it's a trial. I remember, I remember driving home telling my dad that, you know, Cookie Lavagetto, the manager, he said, if I signed with Washington, I might be on his staff in two years. And, of course, my dad was tamping down the enthusiasm, Say, well, you know, Cookie might say that to a lot of young kids and so forth. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was uh, quite a memorable day for me.
1: You end up signing with the Senators for $4,000, and after a couple of years in the minor leagues, you get called up in July of 1959 to pitch against the White Sox at Comiskey Park. I think you had hurt your shoulder just prior to getting called up, and so the team gave you 10 days to recover, so you headed back home to Zealand... And it was there that you bought your first car, a green 1954 Plymouth Coupe for $350. Wow,
0: you, you've done a lot of homework. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I remember it well. You know, I, did, I didn't have a car when I played out in Missoula in '58. And then I thought uh, when I'd injured my shoulder and I flew back home to Michigan because they, you know, they didn't have rehab periods of time or any of the facilities for that. So if you had an injury, why you just. Went home there and rested for a while. So I went on. When I went home, I said, Well, you know, I have enough money now to to buy a car, so uh, I wish I still had that old 54 Plymouth. Yes,
1: this is the car. This is the styling that makes Plymouth the one car designed for the young in heart. So you go home, you get a little rest, hopefully, heal up a little bit, I guess, and pick up your brand new Plymouth Coupe, and then you make your debut, Jim, at Comiskey Park. August second, nineteen fifty nine. Are you uh, overwhelmed at all, or
0: well, you know, it was not as what I would say exciting or stressful as a normal debut would have been, because I mentioned I hurt my shoulder, and when Red Mary and the manager at Chattanooga called me in and said you're going to the big leagues, and I said Red, uh, do they know that I'm not the same pitcher now that I was early in the year? I had set the uh, southern association strikeout record in 59 of uh, 19 and then i struck out four the next game and then i did something to my shoulder we didn't have mris or x-rays or things like that that they checked it out so i just rested that 10 days and and went back to chattanooga and then when they called me up uh, he said well just go up there and and they'll figure it out up there of course that would never happen today with the close eyes that they keep on all their players The Senators noticed immediately that I was not the same pitcher that I was in spring training. And I didn't last too long in that debut. And then I had a a small cyst taken off between a couple of my ribs that was hampering my throwing motion. And uh, so uh, it wasn't a very auspicious debut.
1: Yeah, but now, Jim, you are at least in the big leagues. And then a month later, uh, you and the Senators were in Boston to play the Red Sox. And at this point, you'd only read about Fenway from your dad's books. So you walk from the Kenmore Hotel in Boston to the ballpark early in the morning to, uh, you know, just to be able to take a look inside. What did you think of Fenway the first time you walk in?
0: Well, again, I was so in awe of these big league ballparks. Nowadays, of course, they don't make that much of an impression on players because they see them on television. But I had heard so much about the green monster and I heard from reading articles that Ted Williams played... Pepper, which is a game today, I don't even think a lot of players don't even know what it was, but Ted Williams played Pepper every day with Tom Yawkey, the owner, and Johnny Orlando, the clubhouse attendant. So there I was sitting in the stands uh, with nobody else there watching Ted Williams take batting practice, and then a few hours later, uh, facing him for the first time in my career.
1: Honestly, it's hard to wrap my mind around it. I mean, here you are just a kid, uh, literally a kid, and you're facing Ted Williams in Fenway Park. And you didn't get the start that day, but you did get in in the seventh inning, and you pitched a perfect inning.
0: I did, and then I started on the Sunday, and that's uh, that's when I, I got a chance to—I uh, I shouldn't have probably started, but they at that time of the year, uh, with the Senators down near the bottom, as they usually were, they just said, we're going to give the young kids a chance to each pitch an inning here or there, and uh, that's what I, I did on uh, Sunday afternoon.
1: I know. Back in the '50s and '60s, there was a unique way that managers would let their starting pitcher know that they were going to be on the hill that day for the team. How did you find out?
0: You knew ahead of time that you were going to start, but the uh, the sign of the starting pitchers when you walked into the clubhouse, and they usually put a baseball in each of your shoes. Those those were the two balls that you took down to the bullpen to warm up with. So that was kind of the thing you looked for when you walked into the clubhouse. I'm starting today. I had actually known the day before that they were going to run a bunch of us out there and and hope that we each might start an inning or pitch an inning.
1: And this is such a great moment. Fabled Fenway Park. In the first inning, Ted Williams steps up to the plate and you turn around and you look at your second baseman, Johnny.
0: John Shivey.
1: And you mouth the words.
0: I said, you believe I'm I'm facing Ted Williams, you know, because Facing guys like Williams and and Mantle in the early days before cable television, all you knew about them was their trading card, and uh, so it was it, you were much more in awe of facing those mega stars in those days than I think young kids are today because oh they've seen them on television and players get called up to the big leagues so much sooner. So I don't think they're quite as in awe of the uh, superstars as we were.
1: Ted Williams did end up getting a single off you that day. But the following year, playing Boston, you got him to fly out to left. I mean, how many people, Jim, can say that they retired Ted Williams?
0: Yeah, that's always, as time went on, you know, that's always been a, a fun little piece of trivia to talk about. Because, you know, I got to know Ted Williams pretty well. Uh, I spoke at the opening of his tunnel in uh, 1997, and we crossed paths at a few baseball uh Events in the off season, so I was I was honored to get to know Ted uh, as a person, and in, in, in addition to just a ball player. So in
1: 1959 and 1960, before the Senators moved to Minnesota and became the Twins, you played your home games at Griffith Stadium. What are some of the things that you recall about that ballpark?
0: Well, I remember the uh, the monster wall they had in right field uh, was almost like the Green Monster, and it was. You know just an old ballpark the uh, the bullpen it was sort of set off by this three-foot wall out in right center field and then the pitching mounds and stuff were inside there so you were like a spectator and I remember opening day in 1960 that was my first opening day and my teammate Camilo Pascual was pitching and the wind was just howling blowing in and I uh, walking out to center field we all said, well, nobody's going to hit one out of here today. And wouldn't you know, Williams just drove one right through the wind in the first inning. But I think that's the only run they got. And Camilo struck out 15 that day, which to this day is still an opening day record for strikeouts.
1: Yeah, Camilo Capitz, April 27th, 1960, at 21 years old, you were starting against Whitey Ford of the New York Yankees at Yankee Stadium. When you walk out of the dugout onto the field at Yankee Stadium for the first time, you think...
0: You know, I was in awe of just looking around at the stadium. And then in those days, the starting pitchers warmed up in the on-deck circles to the left and right of home plate, down toward the screen behind home plate. They did that so fans would get a chance to to watch the starters. So you know, I warm up and about, uh, I'm, I'm getting loose and about every, you know, minute or two, I look over 20 feet to my left. And I said, man, I can't believe I'm facing Whitey Ford. And then, you know, when there's a man on base, a pitcher goes into a stretch position. So when I did that, I was looking right into the Yankee dugout. And there I saw Mantle and Maris and Yogi and scouring and all these guys kind of staring at me, which was a bit intimidating. So I went back to my windup, but uh, I remember that day, obviously. And, you know, the cool thing is for as long as I played and playing back then, I got to become friends with a lot of those legends that all I did was have their trading cards. Whitey and I became uh, great friends through a golf club that we played at together in uh, in Florida. So that was so neat to think that as a young kid, you were collecting their trading cards and then playing against them and then actually becoming friends with them as normal people outside of uh, uniform.
1: By the way, that game against the Yankees, you pitched seven innings, gave up one earned run, and recorded your first Major League victory.
0: Yeah, Jim Lemon pinch hit, hit a three-run homer off off Whitey, and then Pedro Ramos, who was known as a starter, came in and pitched the last two innings to save the game.
1: In between the 1960 and 1961 seasons, Jim, you find out that the Senators are moving to Minnesota and will become the Twins... Minnesota has Twins, and the whole state is celebrating. The Twins, in this case, is their first Major League Baseball team. From 1961 to 1981, the Twins played their home games at Metropolitan Stadium. What are your memories of the Met?
0: Well, I think it was like just an old ballpark. I mean, I played there as a minor leaguer in 1960 when I was with the Charleston Senators. They sent me back down to the minors, and I actually faced Yaz there, who was with the Minneapolis Millers then. It, It was just, kind of like an old country triple-A ballpark it had a cyclone fence all around it out beyond the left field fence you could see the cows grazing before they built the uh, double deck grandstand there and to this day when I go back to Minnesota there are so many of the the old fans that rave about going out to the Met what a great experience that was because it was kind of out of the city and the breeze was blowing out there it was just a wholesome environment uh, unlike the you know the lavish that players play in today.
1: Minnesota Twins fans will never forget 1965. That ball club was loaded. In addition to your pitching, you had Mudcat Grand, Camila Pascual, hitting from Zoya Versailles, Harmon Killebrew, Tony Oliva. As special as that year was for the Twins, it got off to a little bit of a rough start. On April 12th, 1965, you were to be the opening day pitcher against the Yankees at Metropolitan Stadium. But because of torrential rains and and I think a flooded highway and horrific traffic, you could not get to the stadium by car. So you called an audible. How did you get there?
0: Well, you know, they didn't have cell phones in those days. And... uh... So uh, my apartment was in Burnsville, as were three of my teammates, Dick Stigman, Rich Rollins, Billy Buffet. And so I headed into the stadium, and I noticed all the traffic backed up. And uh, I stopped, got out of my car, and talked to the gentleman ahead of me. I said, what's happening? And he said, well, the river's flooded. We can't get across the river. Uh, so I thought, well, uh, my friend Paul Giel, who was a former teammate of mine, was the sports director at WCCO Radio. So I knew they had a traffic helicopter. So I went back to my apartment, which was maybe five minutes back, and I got a hold of Paul, told him the situation, and he called me back a little bit later and said, if you can be in the parking lot of the Burnsville High School, which I knew where it was, then uh, we'll take you in two by two. So that's actually how we got to the Met on uh, opening day in 65. And uh, they only had 16,000 people there that day because of the uh, because of the floods all around. So it really uh, kept the crowd down, especially against the Yankees, which would have been a, a sellout.
1: The Twins end up winning that game and went on to win 101 more. And on September 26th, you struck out Don Zimmer in the bottom of the ninth to win the pennant.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I played in the off season. We had to get jobs in the off season, the early 60s. In fact, that whole decade I did, I think. And, uh, So I was uh, living in St. Pete, Florida and working for the recreation department there. And I ended up being on the same slow pitch softball team and basketball team with Zim. And then in 65, he strikes out for the last out of the game. And that was one of his last at bats in the major leagues.
1: The Twins would now face Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, and the Dodgers in the World Series. Hello, everybody. This is Joe Garagiola with Byram Sam, welcoming you to Metropolitan Stadium in Bloomington, Minnesota, and the first game of the 1965 World Series. The Twins took Game 1, and in Game 2, you're facing Sandy Koufax. The lights are on here in Metropolitan Stadium. Both pitches have completed their warm-ups. They were warming up out in the bullpen in right center field, Jim Cott. Scott's a sinker ball pitcher. If he's got his good stuff, you'll see a lot of ground balls. And if Koufax has his good stuff, well, you should hear it hit the catcher's mitt, and you'll see a lot of strikeouts.
0: I had never seen him pitch, and we warm up in the bullpen where, you know, both the pitching mounds are pretty close to one another, and I just could hear the ball coming out of his hand. I'd never seen a, a pitcher in the American League uh, throw like that. Before the game started, it was kind of a gray uh, almost a drizzly afternoon and he looked over at me said you guys play in this weather you know he's used to playing in that nice weather out in California thought well that might be the first chance we have <laughs> and uh, so we're used to playing in that the game starts and we go through the first three innings and I think we each might have walked a man other than that we got him out one two three and I sat down next to Johnny Sane our pitching coach and I said John you know if I give up a run this game's over I said nobody's going to touch this guy and we were fortunate. Uh, we got two earn, two runs, one earned. Tony got a, a key hit to knock in two, so we took the lead. And then Drysdale pinch hit for Sandy in the seventh inning.
1: Yeah, and by that point, that's all you and the Twins need to win game two.
0: Five to one victory by Jim Cott over Sandy
1: Kovacs. And what a career milestone, Jim. You collect a complete game World Series victory against Sandy Koufax and the Dodgers. Well, a record crowd here at Metropolitan Stadium, with some 48,700 people, saw the Minnesota Twins do something that I'm sure very few ball players outside of the players themselves thought they could do. They knocked out Drysdale yesterday and Koufax today and really took charge of this World Series. Despite losing the first two games of the series, the Dodgers would come back and win in seven. But it was an unforgettable year.
0: You know, we ran into the Orioles in uh, in, in 66 with, with Frank Robinson and then again in 69 and 70. And they, you know, they had such a deep pitching staff. And Frank really turned that, he really turned that team around when uh, when the Orioles picked him up and we just couldn't get past them. But overall, I think both in attendance and in, in wins, we were, you know, one of the better teams in the, uh, in the American League. We had a good lineup and we had a lot of talent from, you know, the Cuban players that Papa Joe Cambria had signed uh, Zoilo Gasayas and Tony uh, Oliva, and of course Pasquale and Ramos so it was uh, it was an honor to be a part of that team.
1: I want to take a second and talk about some of the lost ballparks that you pitched in during the 60s. What do you remember about Kansas City's Municipal Stadium?
0: Well, it was always the best conditioned park. George Toma was the greenskeeper and all the infielders just loved going to Kansas City because it was just immaculate. The infield always in good condition was kind of like the old Met in, in Minneapolis, kind of an old country ballpark, and it wasn't a bad pitcher's park uh, for a left-hander because it was deep in left, but a pretty convenient target in in right. That's when Charlie Finley actually, as kind of an answer to Yankee Stadium's short porch, he built the pennant porch in right field so Jim Gentile could hit more home runs, but as it turned out, the opposing team was hitting more home runs in Kansas City, so it worked against him.
1: It was a little bit sometimes like a circus with, with some of the stuff that Charlie Finley came up with, including the petting zoo beyond the outfield wall. He had Harvey the rabbit that would deliver baseballs out of the ground to the, to the umpire. There's a lot of unique eccentricities about that ballpark.
0: Yeah, there really was. Charlie had a lot of different ideas. Uh, he's the one, he's the reason, I guess, we're playing World Series games at night. But the one day, and I just didn't do it, they, he had all the, the starting lineup right out to their position on a mule. I didn't participate in that, <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty, pretty unusual, unique. Charlie was quite a promoter.
1: And it's a good thing he was, because the entire time the Athletics were in Kansas City, they did not have one winning season. In Baltimore, they had plenty of winning seasons, and a lot of pitchers, including Jim Palmer, uh, who was on season one of the podcast, really enjoyed pitching at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. There were these white houses beyond the center field fence, and during day games, hitters would have trouble picking up the ball out of a pitcher's hand. Palmer thought that was a distinct advantage for pitchers when pitching there.
0: I understand exactly what Jim is talking about. The same thing was true in Comiskey in that the outfield where the scoreboard was out there in a day game, it kind of had a glare to it. And so uh, Harmon Killebrew used to tell me, you know, there was tough to pick up the ball as well as in Baltimore. In
1: 1982, Jim, you'll remember the St. Louis Cardinals and making a push for your first World Series ring. And you had a farm in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Is it true that year that you would stay at your farmhouse when the Cardinals were playing the Phillies and that you and Mike Schmidt, who was an old teammate of yours from back in the day in Philadelphia in the mid to late 70s, that you and Mike would ride to the game together?
0: Yeah, that's true. My daughter used to babysit his kids, and uh, I remember driving in. We had a big series with him, uh, a three-game series. And on the way in, Schmidt he said, you know, I'm really worried about the Expos with Dawson and Valentine and Range, Carter, on and on, Wallach. They had such a strong team. And I said, you better worry about us because, I said, we got a great infield. We don't depend on the home run. We got Bruce Suter at the end of the game. And then in that series, uh, we lost the first game, but we won the next two out of three, and one of the big outs was uh, Bruce Scott, Mike Schmidt to hit into a 1-2-3 double play to end the inning, and uh, we won two out of those three and went on to win the, uh, the division and the National League pennant.
1: 82 was a magical year for the Cardinals. If I remember correctly, the team stole 200 bases that year, yet Lonnie Smith, Willie McGee, Ozzie Smith... After winning 92 games that year, the Cardinals met the Brewers in the World Series. Welcome to Bush
0: Stadium, a park not designed for the power-packed Milwaukee Brewers, but ideal
1: for the St. Louis Cardinals, who run to get their runs and flash quickness on defense to prevent them. After six games, the series was split at three apiece going into Game 7. The conditions cold for Game 7. The temperatures could drop to in the mid-30s before games end. What do you recall, Jim, about Game 7?
0: I just remember the big hits that Keith Hernandez and George Hendrick got. It was kind of unusual that Keith got a hit off Bob McClure, and they were, you know, high school pals. A memorable
1: moment in World Series, a dramatic confrontation, but also a very emotional one. Two former high school teammates, McClure and Hernandez, facing each other, two RBIs by Hernandez, all on his birthday.
0: Then when we uh, came back to take the lead and having Bruce Shut him down in those last two innings, uh, that was really the highlight of my career To in my last full year to be able to get a World Series ring. Seventh game, the Cardinals, the World's Champions, the final score, St. Louis 6 and Milwaukee 3.
1: It was your 25th season of the big leagues, making you the longest tenured player in baseball history. When you began the next season on April 5th, 1983, you were the last player who had played in the 1950s.
0: Yeah, I uh, was very fortunate being, uh, being left-handed, being able to throw it over. I stayed pretty injury-free, and I always made it a point to keep myself in good condition, going to spring training every year like a rookie, trying to make the team. So those were wonderful times in St. Louis.
1: As historic as your playing career was, your broadcasting career was equally impressive. Sadly for us, you announced your retirement from the broadcasting booth on August 18th. Can you share the story, though, from your book, As Good As Gold? You talk about learning play-by-play from the scooter, Phil Rizzuto. Tell me about the night that you were broadcasting a game with Rizzuto in Cleveland and he and he just disappears. <laughs> what, what in the world happened?
0: That's what Scooter did, you know. We we had a we had a three-man rotation, Bill White, Scooter, myself, and Scooter and I were on the last three innings. He had called everybody by their last name. He said, "Cot, I got to go to the men's room. I'll be right back." And of course he never came back. So when the inning started, I just began to called the game. And that's uh, the last three innings I did by myself. And that was my first introduction to play by play on TV.
1: What do you talk about it the next day? Like, yeah, I just I had enough. I, you know, felt like I did what I needed to do. And
0: not a lot. I think we just came to, you know, it was a cold night and we came to understand that's what Scooter did.
1: And finally, Jim, I got to ask about this. There was a dinner party in the spring of 2002 with you and some of baseball's all time greats. Can you share who attended this dinner party and what made it so special?
0: Well, Bill White, who was my broadcast mentor when I did Yankee games, and he and Bob Gibson were very close, as he was close with Sandy Koufax, because they lived near one another in the the Pennsylvania area, Philadelphia area. So Bill mentioned he had to go up to Vero to see Sandy, and my late wife said, well, why don't we just get them all together here? Because Jupiter was a little south of us, Vero a little north, so we had Bill White, and Nancy, and then Bob Gibson, and Wendy, and Sandy Koufax, and Jane. And I called Tim McCarver, and he came down from Sarasota. You know, I still have pictures of it. I saw Wendy, uh, Bob's widow, at Cooperstown, and she remembers that night. What a memorable night it was. Uh, It would have been fun for people to listen to the stories going around there.
1: One of the things that you discovered that night, one of the stories that was told, how Sandy Koufax ended up playing baseball. He had actually gone to the University of Cincinnati to play basketball, the baseball team was making a trip south, and he thought, wow, baseball might be a good way to escape the cold weather. So he did that instead.
0: Yeah, that's right. A lot of people don't realize Sandy went to uh, to Cincinnati and more of a basketball player than a baseball player.
1: Thank goodness for cold weather in Cincinnati, because I can't imagine baseball history without Sandy Koufax in it. Jim thanks so much for the time today I really appreciate it 25 years in Major League Baseball 283 wins 180 complete games 16 gold gloves four decades of Ford C Frick award winner worthy broadcasting excellence and as of this year a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame thanks so much for the time today Jim
0: all right Mike I enjoyed the visit
1: I think Jim is one of the few guys who I not only grew up watching play, but also I spent decades listening to his insight calling baseball games for, let's see, the Yankees, the Twins. He was on NBC, so many broadcasts with Bob Costas, MLB Network. And I mean, yeah, he won 283 games as a Hall of Famer, but he also won 16 consecutive gold gloves at his position and hit 16 home runs in his career, so he was an athlete too. I have a link in the podcast notes to his book if you'd like to check that out. The producers of the Lost Ballparks podcast are Mike Dunn, Xavier Guerra, Michael Ortman, Briggs Buckingham, and Maddie Zavlakis. Also, a special thanks to John Azalon for helping make this interview happen. Appreciate it, John. Looking forward to joining you next Wednesday for another episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.